a read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. You know, the post-holiday gloom. Everybody hates January and work keeps being work. There was sewage involved at one point. It's been a week. Ugh, gross. Yeah. I finally am out of the rain. As most of our listeners probably know by now, I live in California and we are coming out of our flooding or as the rest of the world probably would know it, a light sprinkle. I saw some crazy videos of the rain on TikTok just taking out bridges and moving boulders around. So your house is still standing, right? Yeah, I'm good. But <laughs> it it shows how bad the infrastructure is here where Literally, this would probably be the most mild winter ever in most parts of the world, and everything here is collapsing. So it's been a pretty stressful week. You're just too soft down in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. At least we don't have to deal with, uh, what did you say, sewage? Yeah, well, when you work for a very large facility that has a lot of plumbing involved, sometimes things happen. Mm, sounds like you need to start drinking. Start or continue, who's to say? <laughs> I actually wanted to, speaking of starting and drinking, I wanted to start today's episode with a story that I came across. What's that? This is going to be story time with Josh and Kelly. Oh, okay. Um, I am sitting crisscross applesauce on a rug, patiently waiting to hear <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> what you have to say. Indubitably, the kindergarten story podcast. <laughs> this story is about John Costas who is now 32 years old, but has a long history of drinking. John had his first alcoholic drink at, guess what age? I'm not trying to think when my first alcoholic drink was. I'd say my first alcoholic drink I shouldn't have had was when I was like 15. Well, John's got you beat by three years. Mm. He had his first drink at 12 and attended his first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting by 16. Dang. So he went um, pretty hard, pretty quick. Mm -hmm. And uh, apparently the Alcoholics Anonymous didn't work because throughout college, he'd start drinking liquor in the morning, planning two-day hangovers into his schedule. So I guess on his calendar, he just marks down hungover for the next two days. I don't even know how you would generate a two-day hangover. I've had some wicked one-day hangovers. Two days is unreal. Mm, well, that was this guy's life. And by 21, he'd entered his first stint in rehab. And he says he tried everything to get sober, but nothing stuck. By the time he was 25, he was consuming almost 23 drinks in a single bender. God, that sounds so awful in so many, so many different ways but the cost of that alone oh my god well i guess that explains how you get a two-day hangover no kidding so at 25 consuming 23 drinks a bender john costas entered into a medical trial at the nyu grossman school of medicine and this trial they spent eight months studying the effects of psilocybin on alcohol addiction and gauging its potential in treating the condition. So psilocybin is a substance that's derived from mushrooms. So like psychedelic mushrooms, magic mushrooms, right? Not, yeah, not the mushrooms that go on my pizza. 
Although if you had them on your pizza, it could be a very interesting experience. Along with pineapple. No, let's not go there. We're not going there today. (laughs) Magic mushrooms. Okay. Pineapple, not okay. Yeah. So John entered this trial. And as part of the trial, participants underwent four psychotherapy sessions before they took their first pill, which contained an amount of psilocybin based on body weight or an antihistamine placebo. It's interesting that the placebo was an antihistamine. I usually think of of placebos being sugar pills. Maybe in this case, because if you are told you're potentially getting a drug and literally nothing happens, you, you might get suspicious. But if you take a Benadryl, you know you've taken a Benadryl. <laughs> Regardless, these drug sessions lasted eight hours. They had therapists in the room watching, blood pressure and heart rates were monitored. And after this first dosing, they gave the participants four additional psychotherapy sessions. And if there were no adverse reactions, the second psilocybin sessions involved higher doses of both drugs and more therapy. It's interesting also that this was kind of a multi-tiered approach involving psilocybin and psychotherapy. Yeah. And there were heartening results from this therapy, including for John Costas. And we'll talk about the specifics of the results a little bit later. But I think that this is part of a larger conversation that we're starting to have right now on the legality and use of psychedelics as a form of treatment for a variety of mental and emotional conditions. Absolutely. We are starting to see a lot of things that were initially considered recreational or very taboo being welcomed into the medical industry and having a lot of potential applications that can help a lot of people. And I think the the granddaddy of this was obviously marijuana. Yeah. Which you say taboo, and it's starting to be funny to think about it, but marijuana was once and maybe in certain places still taboo. But now we have 21 states that have legalized it for recreational purposes, just for the fun of it. And 37 states have legalized it for medicinal use. So well over half of the states have have legalized it for treatment of various conditions. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And I think the legalization of marijuana has been going on for at least a couple of decades now. It's generally accepted by the majority of states that it has some value. Mm -hmm. And then even if the value is not super high, I think they've also decided the harms aren't that high either. So low risk here. Now we're starting to see legal changes to the status of other drugs as well. Starting with psilocybin itself, the active ingredient in those magic mushrooms that Josh definitely does not have on his pizza. (laughs) You have bacon on your pizza, right? I do. Yeah, I'm not surprised. (laughs) So one of our listeners, side note, pointed out that apparently I talk about how delicious meat is pretty often, and I'm pretty sure that's just a mess with you. So I feel like I should apologize for that. I've never once said that meat does not taste good. That's (laughs) definitely something I'm aware of and miss. But anyway, (laughs) away from pepperoni and back to mushrooms. (laughs) Back to mushrooms. So we're starting to see legal changes for that across the country as well. It was decriminalized in Oregon in 2020, and there's been some federal legislation in the last couple of years to research the therapeutic applications of psychedelics. And a lot of states are looking at treatment applications or otherwise reduce penalties for possession of psilocybin. And this is what paved the way for studies like the one that we just referenced, right? Legalization, whether it's at a research level 
therapeutic or recreational level. One drug that is starting to have a lot of applicability for treatment purposes, but does not seem to be getting the same sort of leeway when it comes to recreational usage is ketamine. We're starting to see that it's legal for medical application, although highly regulated in most states around the the United States. But uh, there are no states where it's legal for recreational use. Right. This is used as a horse tranquilizer. So probably in this case, some regulation is not a horrible idea. I mean, anything can be a horse tranquilizer in a high enough dose. (laughs) Even bacon? I I imagine that would be a shock to a horse's system and probably put him down for for the count. (laughs) Get a meat sweats and a little bit of food coma. (laughs) Nasty. So we've got these drugs starting with marijuana, psilocybin, other psychedelics, ketamine, hallucinogenics, and there's some specific things that they're being used for, although this list is certainly growing as we find out more and more about them. But we have research for the treatment of opioid addiction. There's strong evidence that they are valuable in the treatment of depression to stop smoking, alcohol abuse treatment. It seems as though there's a huge variety of potential issues that are at least worth looking into the value that these sorts of drugs might provide. Yes, there seems to be mounting evidence that some of these substances have some merit when we're looking at very specific scenarios. But when we're looking at the broader range of psychedelics as a whole, weed is not necessarily analogous to the other types of drugs we're talking about in the psychedelic category. Mm, I think some proponents sort of talk about this as though it's inevitable that it was basically weed and then mushrooms and then ketamine and you know, so on and so forth. And because the one is taking the course that it is, the rest are sure to follow. And that's definitely not the case. These are unique to themselves in a lot of ways. That being said, the debate around them is very similar. A lot of the same rhetoric and a lot of the same arguments that we heard about weed, we are now hearing about these other drugs. Not to say that the end result of those arguments is going to be identical. So it's probably important to consider why something like weed got legalized and is seen as so acceptable now, and a lot of these other things maybe aren't. I think that most of the reason is in, you know, the capital T-S, the science. There were just enough studies done confirming the lack of side effects of marijuana, you know, once it was thought of this horrible, addictive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, after studies were completed, we found out that's not true. And that alongside of potential benefits that it provides, at a certain point, it just seems like it makes sense. This is a thing we should be able to do. Are you saying that reefer madness lied to me? That if, (laughs) if I smoke the devil's lettuce, I maybe won't commit vehicular manslaughter? You're going to grow up to be some crazy old witch living with a bunch of cats. Oh, wait actually. I'm not that old. (laughs) I like that's the part that you (laughs) take objection to. I will go on the record yet again. I'm very cool with witches. (laughs) That's true. For for our listeners, I'm not like talking trash here. I know that Kelly is very Mm pro-witch. But these drugs that we're talking about, psychedelics, hallucinogenics, the ones that are in question now are certainly more potent than weed. And that could potentially be in good ways and potentially be in bad ways. 
And it's also important to note that weed now, especially in states where it's been legalized and mass produced, is a lot different than weed was like 50 years ago. Mm. But still, you don't overdose on weed. It sometimes feels like you're overdosing on weed, but you're not actually overdosing on it. And the ability to get through an experience without dying is a lot more likely when you're looking at marijuana versus something like ketamine. Mm -hmm. Well, with all of these questions seemingly answered when it comes to marijuana, what is the debate? A big component of the debate is likely the moral one, the values of our society, whether we would permit something or feel comfortable enough with something to make it legal for people to use. Mm -hmm. In addition to that part of the debate, another big component is the scientific aspect of it, actually looking at the benefits of these drugs versus the harms. And with anything, there's good and bad that can happen from it, looking at the short and long-term side effects and the potential for things like abuse or addiction. Right. I think that's definitely the more substantial of the two debates that are happening, the scientific one as opposed to the moral one. But the moral one's certainly worth discussing. So why don't we take that one first, and then we can get to this larger kind of medical scientific debate next. Sound good? Yes. The first question in my mind about the moral debate is, do we care? You and me? Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, society, society at large, should we be passing laws based on some sort of collective morality? I'd say it's impossible not to consider the moral debate and the way that we've structured our society. Morals still drive a lot of the decisions we make, both as individuals and as the collective. There's a prevailing moral culture in the United States, although it's starting to ease up a little bit, but the you know Judeo-Christian type of conservative aspects of America have been pretty strong. And they do drive a lot of the attitudes towards drug policy. I don't have in front of me a list of the states that have and have not legalized marijuana. But based on the ones that I could name off the top of my head, I do think that there is a very strong correlation to the degree of religiosity of the populations of the states and whether or not they have legalized or have kept marijuana illegal. There's a perception and the the stoner trope has definitely had a big stronghold in pop culture, but I think it's diminishing. There are a lot of people who lead very productive lives and are very open about their casual use of marijuana or other drugs. Mm -hmm. I think that whether it's culturally or legally, a lot of the stigma and a lot of the attraction is related to weed's status of being illegal, right? Because it's illegal, it attracts a certain counterculture. Because it's anti-Christian or whatever faith or morality you'd like to input there, it attracts the kind of people who are actively seeking to undermine those sorts of morals. And so the argument there would be, if we legalize it and if we remove that stigma, then now everybody, the doctors, the lawyers, etc., would be comfortable doing it. And now, boom, it's not just the lazy stoners anymore. There was a big difference between when I was in college and who you knew you could get weed from. Kind of shady folks, some of whom I may have debated with. Mm -hmm. I knew some of them. Fun folks. They're cool. Whatever. 
And the first time when weed became legal in Washington state and I went to a weed store for the first time, expecting it to have that same sort of sense of illicit, really sketchy situation. It was like a designer experience. There was like a lobby that had artwork up and it was well lit and they were like curating the experience and they had like concierge service of like, what are you interested in? What specific type of high are you going for? Now, again, I don't smoke weed, but I'm like, this is a lot different than those bums in high school. (laughs) Mm. I suppose we should probably point out in this episode, at least for me, I've never smoked weed. So you can take literally everything I'm saying with a grain of salt. But I do remember in Denver going to a similar establishment. And yeah, I didn't really know what to expect walking in, especially as somebody that had never smoked before. But it was basically just Target. (laughs) It's like, this is just a, a store. Yeah. So then maybe this whole moral debate is self fulfilling in a lot of ways, right? If we say that weed is immoral, we help it become immoral, not just in a definitional sense, but also in terms of the kind of people and that counterculture that it would therefore attract. Whereas if we legalize it, all of that goes away. Aside from the sketchy counterculture stuff that people are afraid of when it comes to marijuana, there are a lot of people who base their moral decisions about marijuana on some fear of the effects that marijuana has on individuals where it's going to create a cult of blank-eyed zombies who can't be productive in society and are just complete burnouts and have ill effects with their health as a result of it and and spread that to everybody else. Or become the greatest Olympian of all time, one or the other. Well, Michael Phelps wasn't always around when people were forming their opinions about marijuana. (laughs) So this is the point where the moral discussion about marijuana starts to interact with the science of the discussion about marijuana. And some of the concerns that people have had on a moral basis probably can be answered by some of the issues that have been hashed out, pun intended, on the medical side of the debate. Mm -hmm. And this process we've kind of already gone through in large part with marijuana, but that brings us to The discussion we have today as we advance this debate forward and as society now considers things like psilocybin, psychedelics, hallucinogenics, this is where the medical debate holds a lot of value and we have a lot of questions left over. So I think that's what we'll dedicate the majority of the rest of the episode to. And what's interesting about this to me is that the the medical debate, the research, once it's done, almost renders this a null issue. Right. There is a truth to these drugs. And if through science we prove that the benefits of these drugs outweigh the harms, legalize it. If the opposite is true, don't. Episode over. It might be a little reductive. As we know, science has a truth to it, or so we believe, but that doesn't always impact how people vote or create policy. Mm -hmm. And even the term, the science, capital T, capital S, is something that definitely needs to be considered. I think we're going to take a little bit of a detour in this episode to provide one of our little mini debate lessons in terms of how to analyze science, research, studies, etc. 
hopefully valuable for you, our listeners. We hear a lot about the science when we're discussing a lot of different issues, but there are a lot of complexities to the presentation of science. So often the science is not so much about science itself. Mm -hmm. It's about politics, dare we say? Very possibly. And the best example of this might be climate change. In a politicized issue, the science can be manipulated to say realistically whatever you want it to say. Okay, so let's take this lesson of how to analyze the validity of research and apply it to the topic of today, which is research around psychedelics by going back to our psilocybin trial for alcohol addiction, right? This is the research that we started the show with talking about John Costas and the psychotherapy slash psilocybin slash antihistamine research that was done. And I want to start with a quote here, which is, our findings strongly suggest that psilocybin therapy is a promising means of treating alcohol use disorder, a complex disease that has proven notoriously difficult to manage, says senior study author and psychiatrist Michael P. Insert obligatory podcast. I'm about to butcher a name here. Bogenschutz, MD. You think I got it? I think that's what I would have gone with. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to support you on that one. And Michael B. is the director of NYU Langone's Center for Psychedelic Medicine. And here I think is the first question that when you're looking at research and you're looking at the science that you should be asking yourself. And that is, who is conducting the trial. Exactly. Perhaps the Center for Psychedelic Medicine has a vested interest in having research conclude that psychedelic medicine is effective. Yeah, perhaps. And I don't want to sound too jaded here because it's not a necessary disqualifier. Like presumably people that research stuff do it in fields of which they are experts and of which they are invested. So this is not an automatic disqualifier, but I think it's just important for anybody reading through the study to just take a second and note who's putting the study out. Furthermore, a lot of the research that is conducted in a lot of these institutions are funded by grants or other investors. And there could be some influence depending on the source of a lot of the funding. Mm -hmm. So we have to ask the question, you know, who did this and who do we trust? And I, I, there's certain industries that are historically trustworthy. Uh, universities, when it comes to science, would probably be one of them. When it comes to gender studies, not so much. Liberal breeding grounds. Are you just trying to pick a fight? <laughs> no. Anyway, so universities historically are, are trusted. Hospitals, potentially, as research centers would be trusted. Used to be the media was trusted. Not so much anymore. I'd say for all of these different institutions, it also comes down to are they privately owned or are they public institutions? If they're privately owned, what is the ideology backing them? There are a lot of hospitals that are run by the Catholic Church. They probably have a different agenda or even permissibility of some research than places like the hospital I work at, which is publicly owned. Mm -hmm. So that could be a place to look to establish or undermine credibility. I think a couple of things you can ask that typically are good signs if something is bipartisan, probably legitimate. If something is international, potentially 
legitimate, just getting countries to coordinate on something. Uh, an example here that's not science related, but if Trump appointees to different courts disown claims of election fraud, that should be a more credible source because they are crossing party lines to confirm something that they would typically stand against. Exactly. If they are advocating for something that is truthful rather than something that is self, self-serving self or something that's actively against their own self-interest to advocate for, there probably is a lot of merit behind what they're saying. Yeah, unfortunately, this usually doesn't happen. <laughs> usually people don't put out results that are antithetical to what they hoped would happen in the first place, whether it's Supreme Court justices or directors of research centers. But I think if you can find instances where this is true, that's as close to a green flag as you could probably get. Another thing that can validate if the research you're looking at has merit is, is it replicated? Are there a lot of different folks who have done the same sort of research who are coming to the same conclusion? Which is especially important as that is part of the scientific method. Something has to be repeatable for it to be valid. And going back to the case that we have before us today, in terms of psilocybin treating alcohol use disorder, this was the first placebo-controlled trial to explore psilocybin as a treatment for excessive alcohol consumption. So although the results were promising, you do need to take it with a grain of salt as it has not yet been repeated. It was the first time this is done. You know, my dad quit smoking almost 40 years ago off of some sort of a trial where it was a talk therapy situation. And he just put down his cigarettes and never went back again. And I'm wondering if he's one of those exceptions to the rule, because if that really was effective, you'd probably see it everywhere. Mm. My dad got lucky, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and and I do want to be clear. I'm I'm not necessarily trying to undermine the results of this study. They were definitely positive. And it's very likely that this will be repeated. And it's very likely that the results will once again provide us optimism. But the important thing here is that these are the questions that need to be asked. These are the things that need to be noticed. Not automatic red flags, but just question marks that need to be raised. Question everything. It, that's the point of the podcast, right? Mm -hmm. Unless we say it. Yeah, we're pretty credible. <laughs> we are bipartisan, international, and repeatable. We're definitely repeatable. Often copied. What's the phrase? often imitated, never, never replicated. I don't know. People try to be us. They hate us because they ain't us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so another couple of things you can look for is scale and duration, especially again, when it comes to scientific studies. So in this particular study, there was an 83% reduction in alcoholism for the participants who did take the psilocybin. This is versus a 50% reduction in those that were given the antihistamine. That sounds like a pretty big deal. 33% better results for those individuals that took psilocybin. You're talking about percentages, but we don't know how many people that comprises. Uh, but I do. Okay. Show off. <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you. Okay. Episode over. Oh, no. <laughs> That's exactly the question that should be asked is, Percentages are one thing, but what does that mean in real numbers? So this particular study had 93 participants, which means that 36 saw significant decreases 
in their alcohol consumption as far as the group that took psilocybin versus 23 that saw significant decreases in the placebo group. So now, as opposed to this 33%, we're seeing a difference of 13 people, which is not quite as impressive sounding. No, I agree. This could be an outlier if this is going to be repeated over and over again. The difference between the groups could become larger or it could become even more narrow, which would lead us to ask, maybe Benadryl can really <laughs> mm. take up some market share in the alcohol treatment industry. <laughs> or, or certainly if you're somebody that's considering using psilocybin or using ketamine to treat a condition that you might have, maybe this one study shouldn't be the thing that you make your decision based on or for society larger at a whole maybe this should not be the thing that we use to decide whether or not to legalize these substances or not. Yeah. If I was in a position to decide what to do next with a, an issue I needed treatment on, I think I would want more to substantiate the value of a particular option. Additionally, the duration of a study like this also raises some questions. It was an eight-month trial, and eight months is a substantial amount of time for a lot of people to commit to something. So it's understandable why some people may quit. Mm -hmm. Eight months is a long time on face value. But when we're talking about something like alcohol addiction, there are certainly countless cases of people who have been alcohol free for eight months, a year, two years, and then relapsed into it. So there's a huge hole here in terms of the data as far as how long are the effects of psilocybin going to last? Does this mean you're replacing alcohol? with psychedelics. And if you don't continuously take psychedelics into the future, you know, once a year, twice a year, your alcoholism could potentially come back. And if you do take it that regularly for that long of a time, are there negative side effects that this study didn't uncover? So duration of a study, scale of a study, who conducted it, all of these things are very important in terms of analyzing, again, capital T, the capital S science. Another aspect of research and the way that data is presented, which lends itself so well to the podcasting medium, is how the visual data <laughs> is represented. Yeah. Beware of graphs. Beware of pie charts, Venn diagrams, the like. A lot of the research that you can find will have many different ways that the data can be visually represented. Like a bar graph may cut off a big portion of data sets that are all the same and make differences look way more extreme than they actually are. So scale of the actual graphs involved can be very important. Maybe play around in PowerPoint and put the data in and make different graphs yourself and see what you come up with. Yeah, this might not be the easiest point to explain over a podcast where we don't have visuals. But if you could imagine a bar graph where you had one variable was 99. We'll just throw that out there. And another variable was 100. If you were to graph that out on a 0 to 100 scale, it'd be a very, very, very small difference between those two things. But if you were to show that same graph and you were to start the graph at like 95, for example, so it only shows 95 to 100, now it looks like there's a 20% difference between those two numbers. See how quick I did that math? You're getting so much better at math. Yeah, because of our debate podcast. 
<laughs> the point is, if, if, if that's hard to visualize, the point is, depending on how the graphs are constructed, data can appear very, very different. And certainly researchers and people who present data and have an agenda behind it are well aware of that and more than happy to use whatever tool they have at their disposal uh, to engage in visual tomfoolery and make you think whatever it is they want you to think. Lies, damn lies, statistics, and pie charts. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. There's fuckery afoot. Now that you're all going to be critical readers of any media that comes your way, and we do recognize that there is some indication that there are positive outcomes for the type of research that has been done with things like psilocybin, we have to acknowledge that it's not all necessarily a perfect story. It's not the panacea, as it were. And addressing the concerns about harms or the science behind harms is another important aspect of this discussion. And this is where the analogy or spectrum from marijuana to some of these other drugs might break down because the side effects of weed are basically happy, hungry, sleepy, none of which are that bad. Any of our weed consuming listeners who would like to explain to Josh just how right or not he got the summary of the weed experience can contact us on Facebook or Twitter at IndubitablyPod. <laughs> I'm sure he got it spot on with just those three words. What are your favorite marijuana symptoms? Let us know. <laughs> symptoms, side effects, experiences. What are your favorite snacks? <laughs> See, hungry. <laughs> but there might be might be more serious side effects when it does come to talking about things like psychedelics. Uh, we've talked about psilocybin, ketamine, ayahuasca is another popular option that falls into this category, people seeking it out for some sort of emotional or psychological treatment. And I think probably the first thing that we should discuss would be addiction. Definitely a concern with pretty much any type of substance that people consume. There is the risk that smaller doses just don't work anymore and they have to increase the amount of, that they consume in order to get the effect that they desire because of a tolerance that they've built up. Which, to be clear, is different than an addiction. There isn't necessarily a proven chemical addiction for, say, mushrooms, but yeah, the increased tolerance driving people to take higher and higher doses of something when those somethings do have more unpredictable reactions, more unpredictable side effects than marijuana, for example. The tolerance issue compounded with addiction creates a greater amount of risk. If people weren't addicted and didn't need something, they probably would say, uh, it's just not working for me anymore. Moving on. But the desire to continually use things and the compulsion to use things and then needing more and more of it mean that's kind of a dangerous combination. And again, it's important to point out here, we're, I don't think we're unique here. Nobody has set definitive answers in terms of the data on a lot of these particular drugs. And the answers for each individual drug that we've listed might turn out different. Mushrooms seem to be very, very low in terms of addiction risk, other drugs might be higher. PCP, for example, which is not necessarily in the exact same category as something like magic mushrooms or psilocybin, 
maybe closer to ketamine is considered highly addictive. So there's a spectrum here. And at, at the moment, at least, I don't think that we have definitive answers as to where a lot of these drugs fall exactly on that spectrum. The research is still emerging for a lot of these things, especially ones that were originally street drugs and had a different origin and quality than the type of stuff that is being used in in some of these studies. And let's say it's not addictive. I mean, if it is addictive, it's obviously a huge negative. But even if it's not addictive and it's just a matter of people increasing tolerance and therefore seeking higher doses, some of the short-term harms that have been, for all intents and purposes, proven include some pretty intense physiological effects, things like insomnia, dizziness, high blood pressure, et cetera. A lot of those symptoms are specifically associated with ketamine infusions. And we'll talk a little bit about the applicability of ketamine in psychological treatment, but the intensity of these symptoms and the possibility that the ketamine treatments don't even work could put people through a lot of difficult psychological, emotional, and physical circumstances when taking these substances. For potentially little to no benefit. Potentially. And maybe more concerning than the short-term harms would be the long-term harms. And this is where, again, a study that lasted eight months doesn't really have a way of giving us a good answer as to the severity or even existence of long-term harms. For example, there is hallucinogenic persisting perception disorder, HPPD, which is an under-researched neuropsychological condition involving distressing changes to visual perception following the use of drugs, including and especially the drugs at hand today, psychedelics. This reminds me a little bit of the COVID vaccine debate. We all recognize the value of the COVID vaccine in the short term, but it's literally impossible to know the long-term effects because it just hasn't been around that long. All I know is my Wi-Fi has not gotten better. But Bill Gates knows where you are, and that's what's really important. I think that the takeaway from all of this is that, again, if if we use marijuana as the comparison here, that these psychedelics much more likely come with a need to be controlled. They are easier to abuse, easier to get wrong. Like weed, you can do it on your own, in your basement, no big deal. You probably don't want to be using ketamine by yourself, no one around, not knowing where it came from, just on a whim. Well, even marijuana benefits from some sort of legal oversight. People who get it the shady way often don't know exactly what they're getting and have had bad experiences with laced marijuana. It's much more likely if you're buying legally regulated marijuana from a marijuana target in Denver, Mm -hmm. probably not going to have it laced with something. And that's the kind of difference you'll see with psilocybin or with ketamine too. The difference between being a street drug that you can't really find the provenance of, like it's a piece of art or a wine from Southern France. You don't know what you're really getting, but if it's got some sort of regulation there, then you have a built-in safety mechanism because there's a lot of oversight. We mentioned that psilocybin was decriminalized in Oregon in 2020. Kelly lives in Oregon. Do you have any experience in terms of, even if it's not necessarily taking this, I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, but uh, is there just more confidence in 
what you're getting now when you get psilocybin or when you get mushrooms? Yes. This isn't something that's ever been of interest to me. I'm not into the idea of altering my perception of reality, but the idea of microdosing, which a lot of people are doing where you're taking such a small amount, very dilute concentration of the drug, and you don't experience the same actual psychedelic effects of it. That's definitely had some appeal to me just as a, oh, if that's like a way to make you feel better and make your brain work better, that sounds like a cool idea. I've never wanted to like trip if you know what I mean. <laughs> mm. And I, I do know people personally, not giving names because I'm not in Oregon, but they have been prescribed psilocybin uh, and they did microdose for an extended period of time and saw some real benefits from it. What kinds of benefits were they discussing? It was a um, high anxiety situation that has greatly tempered down. And the psilocybin use was not permanent. Right? It was for a fixed amount of time. They don't do it anymore. They don't microdose anymore. But they are still seeing the benefits of it. And again, this is not an eight-year, 10-year study. This is anecdotal. So to run myself through the list of checks that we've asked all of our listeners to prescribe, the duration was reasonably long, but certainly things might change in the future. And it being anecdotal and a sample size of one, you know, take this for what it's worth. But this seemed to be a very positive experience for the person involved. Very encouraging. Do it. No. Do it. I don't know. Follow up episode a year from now. No, I don't even know where to. I don't even know where to get shrooms. <laughs> and so this also, I think, leads to a question of the legality of treatment versus recreation. If we look at marijuana, where both are starting to become legalized, potentially for some of these drugs, it we might find ourselves in a situation where ketamine, for example, for treatment becomes legal, but is never legalized for recreation. Based on the intensity of ketamine in particular, I don't see that there will be a recreational legalization of that particular drug. I can see that there is an overwhelming trend towards acceptance of psilocybin with the decriminalization we've seen, the embracing of the research around it. I'd say that within 15 years, there's going to be a state that has it legal recreationally. We're going to hold you to that. Well, we have to be around for 15 years. <laughs> Check it. Uh, 2038. Episode is, 753. Is Kelly right? <laughs> <laughs> The other thing I think that's important to note here is we're listing all of the potential harms, but we can't just weigh harms versus nothing. Now, not when we talk about recreation, but when we talk about treatment, the use of these drugs is geared towards dealing with incredibly serious conditions. The study that we cited was for alcoholism. And just to rattle off a statistic here, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, nonpartisan, been around a long time, has a pretty large sample size, checks all of our boxes for credible, reports that excessive alcohol use kills roughly 95,000 Americans every year. 
often due to either binge drinking or liver disease. And it's also linked to enormous economic and workplace losses, injury accidents, impaired learning, memory, and mental health. So even if some of these side effects for the drugs that we're listing do happen, it's not just take it or not take it. It's take it or remain alcoholic, be one of the 95,000 deaths a year. That seems like the alternative is take it or experience alcoholism. There is still a possibility that taking it does not improve someone's situation when it comes to alcoholism. But if it is effective, I think that putting up with some temporary nausea and maybe a little bit of a mood instability as a result of taking some of these medications on a temporary basis is worth it compared to what we're talking about with extreme alcohol abuse. Mm -hmm. Or another potential benefit of this would be for veterans who are returning home from war, dealing with things like PTSD, displaying an inability to re-socialize. These are very serious conditions that a, a substantial number of people have to live with. And if there is a potential cure out there for it, uh, I, I certainly don't think the moral argument is, is a valid reason to stop them from accessing it. And as far as the side effects go, maybe it's up to them to decide whether or not the risk is worth the potential benefits. Maybe the science is up to them to analyze and, and see if they buy it or not. PTSD from active combat is a serious concern, and it is something that destroys families and communities. So it does seem like minor side effects from drug use with some oversight would be a worthwhile cost to prevent this. And I actually talked to somebody who is in uh, an interesting situation here where they are a veteran and are considering whether or not to turn to psychedelics as an option for dealing with some of the side effects related and and some unrelated just emotional psychological conditions that they're dealing with and they've been going through this thought process for a while now and have decided that psychedelics specifically psilocybin is something that they are likely going to pursue well be interested to hear if they have success with it as well did they let you know any of the specific issues that they were dealing with and were hoping to find a resolution for? Yeah, it it was an interesting conversation because there's, you know, like a lot of veterans, PTSD coming back from combat and just, you know, the things that happen that a lot of us will never have to deal with, but also a combination of just things that we all deal with, um, ADHD, you know, an inability to start or or finish tasks, depression a sense of hopelessness. And the thing is, and, and this is not necessarily unique to someone who's served, but maybe exacerbated, all of these things are connected. Right? It's not like this neat laundry list of conditions. And, you know, they they pointed out when it's hard to put into terms exactly what's wrong with you, it's very difficult to talk to a doctor about it. 
you know, why, why are you here for treatment? Well, it's this feeling and this mess of emotions and this mess of just things going on in my head. And if there's an option like psilocybin, that might be an easier way of dealing with this, this web that's clouding up your head. So I'm assuming if this person is doing their research and has been talking to medical professionals, that they probably are not just starting with psilocybin, but there may be other treatments that they've pursued, other alternatives to psychedelics that they've sought out. Do they have experience trying out anything else to treat this issue? <laughs> um, apparently, they've, they've tried different things over time. And when they were fresh out of the military, they, they did try therapy. And apparently that didn't go very well. They ended up knocking out their therapist. Like, like decked their therapist. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what they said, um, which, you know, might seem funny, but I, I think it does also speak to, again, just an underlying condition uh, and the way that all of these things just play out inside of somebody's head, having somebody talk to you about it, maybe patronize you about them or, or just say the wrong thing. It, it might make things worse as often as make things better. And not only that, but in more recent attempts to re-engage with therapy, the process can just be exhausting. They pointed out all of the red tape and bureaucracy and just how hard it is working with insurance, talking to this doctor, getting records shifted over. And at a certain point for somebody that already has a hard time motivating themselves, already might be dealing with depression, uh, having to go through all of that and just hit roadblock after roadblock after roadblock is not helpful. That sounds like an intense situation in order to even get access to therapy, let alone when you actually start talking to a therapist, you have to click with them. So what happens if you finally get into a specific office and you start treatment with somebody and it doesn't work, then you have to go through the whole thing all over again. Right. And again, especially when you can't even enunciate to them exactly what it is that's wrong. You know, what, how do you, what do you tell a doctor? I just have a whole mess of things going on in my head. Like, give me the cure. That would, that would be very convenient. Which that's what psilocybin kind of promises to a lot of people. These psychedelic treatments, that's it. It's the thing that clears out the cobwebs that kind of like makes the connections that need to be connected. Um, that's at least the allure of it. But we've talked about how it's not perfect and there are potential pitfalls. Do they have any concerns or fears about what may happen when they pursue this treatment? Yeah, definitely. This was, this was interesting. Like I said, they're in the process. This is not a set decision yet. They, they said that they're likely going to look into this. They they seem relatively certain about it, but some of the things that are giving them pause, uh, one, they've never done psychedelics before. You know, and they said, uh, despite having to deal with some things, you know, their mind is something that they certainly prize, right? Your mind is the, you're told the thing that can't be taken away from you, but this could, you, you know, these psychedelics could be a thing that takes your mind away from you. There is always that horror story that you hear about. Well, that's a pretty severe outcome that could be a possibility of this. So ultimately, they had to make a choice whether or not to do this. 
mm-hmm. knowing that that could be a potential outcome. So why ultimately is this going to be something that they are pursuing? Yeah, you know, this was a part of the conversation that I think might reflect the experiences or thoughts of a lot of people who who might be hopeful that things like psilocybin uh, are a potential answer. You know, and they said a couple of things here. One, let's say one of the outcomes is that you deal with nightmares, you deal with these visions for a bit. And um, their answer was, quote, guess what? I know how to deal with that already. That sucks. But I guess, yeah, the worst outcomes of this medication could be something that they've already experienced and then far worse. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, specifically talking PTSD, I think that that is something that a lot of people that are around us, you know, that have that have served something they have to come back and deal with. So this whole point of, yes, there are probably side effects to these drugs, but we can't just weigh those harms against nothing. We have to weigh them against the alternatives. In this case, in this person's mind, the alternatives just as bad, if not worse. And the other the other thing they said here was there's always a possibility that you're on a pathway to end up killing yourself. So so again, when when somebody, whether it's veteran or not, when somebody is dealing with depression and it gets to that point where you see that as a, a very real potentiality, um, at that point, who cares what the side effects are? Right? At that point, if there's a chance this, quote, fixes me, uh, I'm going to try it. There are a lot of people who get to a point of desperation where, damn the side effects, let's try anything that can get them out of that dark place. So I can appreciate that that is a hard choice to make sometimes, but one that ultimately is worth at least attempting. And and this is where, you know, this discussion of legal versus illegal, I think with it being illegal, the only resources that, that people like this would have to go to to try and help them make their decision would be anecdotal. You go online, you go on forums, you read the accounts of other people that have already done it, and you know that collection of narratives and the stories that you read, you decide, well, I hope that it turns out like this one for me and not like this other one. The anecdotal evidence as to whether or not something is effective does fall into those concerning areas that we've talked about with the type of evidence that we're analyzing. So if all you have to go off of is anecdotal evidence, you have to remain pretty critical of it and try to weigh it appropriately, which is very difficult to do when it's, you know, anonymous and online. And potentially another argument for legalization to just provide more concrete, more credible evidence and information out there for people that might be making this decision. So they don't have to go to Yelp for mushrooms. Another aspect of evaluating the merits of these drugs is comparing them against the alternatives that exist for taking care of a lot of these issues. Which come with their own harms. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've talked about in conjunction with the research that has been done 
and the experiences of people who've been seeking out psychedelics are things like therapy, psychotherapy, talk therapy, counseling, things along those lines. And which certainly have some value, but also in a lot of experiences, like the person that we just talked about, definitely fell short in their ability to deal with any of the underlying problems. Have you heard about some of the criticisms of places like BetterHelp? Mm -mm. So that's an online counseling service, and it's apparently very, very suspect. Mm. There is video I've seen on TikTok, because I'm on the TikTok, of a therapist, quote unquote, arguing with a patient about their diagnosis, claiming that the situation they described isn't real, even though they have an actual diagnosis. And the level of kind of mass marketing, disinterested, temporary therapy that is a result of it, it oversells how useful and valuable it is. And because people cannot afford a lot of better access to real therapy, that is the only alternative they have sometimes. And it can be very predatory. Mm -hmm. And I think they're cashing in on some of the concerns that we just talked about, which was if there's that much red tape or bureaucracy to get to a quote, real therapist, uh, that might be your only option for therapy. And somebody's like, cool, let's make money off of it. Pretty much. It's kind of gross. And then alongside of the counseling comes the since we're talking about drugs, the legal drugs, the pharmaceuticals, which <laughs> we listed some of the side effects for ketamine, some of the side effects for just a generic antidepressant are much worse. There are so many different kinds of antidepressant and so many different kinds of depression or other situations that could be treated with an antidepressant. So a lot of times that people are seeking out medicinal treatments for things like depression, anxiety, PTSD, ADHD, other situations like that, they have to go through the whole gamut of different drugs in order to find the one that's actually going to work. You have to try them out for a long time. You have to taper off of them if you're deciding not to take them anymore. They often have a lot of adverse effects on appetite, sleep, energy levels, other physiological conditions. And if it's an antidepressant that does not work for you, it can actively make your depression worse. Mm -hmm. So it's it's real fun. And you have no way of knowing without trying them all. The uh, stereotypical side effect for the antidepressant is suicidal thoughts. Yeah. Which seems a bit counterproductive. Yeah. So we have got these psychedelics that have potential benefits certainly have some sort of side effects we're not sure how severe how often etc the science is still out but certainly the situations that we're comparing it to whether it's the conditions themselves that we're trying to treat whether it's the current quote solutions that we have in the status quo that comparison will be interesting as we get more and more data. If it is all dependent on the science, but it's hard to get the science without some degree of acceptance or some degree of legalization, where do you fall on this? Would you, when would you, what would you legalize as far as psychedelics go and what we should be using them for? Definitely, I agree with the legalization of as much research as possible through credible organizations 
that don't have a vested interest in a particular outcome, but, you know, federally funded grants for specific institutions that have a history of researching this type of substance or condition, probably a really good idea to investigate the capability of all of these different types of drugs. And if it ends up being that they don't work very well, then we can rule it out through the scientific process just as much as we can use the scientific process to validate that they are good for people. So research 100% I'm in support of. When it comes to utilizing them for treatment of psychological or physical conditions, that has to be dependent on the research itself. Legalization for recreational purposes, I have no problem with the legalization of marijuana in any capacity. Just don't drive. Just don't drive. That's basically it. Just don't drive if you've consumed it. Shrooms, psilocybin, you know, I don't know anything about it from personal experience. And again, probably don't drive. I know people who will just go on a very fun walk after taking some shrooms and they've got somebody there to make sure they don't walk off of like a cliff and it's a good day for them. And that's have fun. Ketamine, I don't think will ever be recreational. And I think that's probably appropriate. So evaluating the individual merits of each of these drugs through a scientific mechanism and having some sort of legal regulation to ensure the safety. Yeah, I'm all for it. Mm. Yeah, I don't think we're too far off on this one. Definitely, you know, more research on everything that's out there. I'm a fan of the more knowledge we have, the better. And for something like this that has the potential to change slash save people's lives, uh, certainly deserves the opportunity for us to look into it at the very least. And that's especially considering the alternatives. We have very poor treatment options when it comes to things like depression. And those treatment options are even poorer when it comes to groups of people like veterans who we are very happy to use and then not super happy to take care of after the fact. So, you know, if this is a potential solution to a lot of people that are out there that are struggling, you know, I want to be as optimistic about it as possible. You going to start microdosing? I am not, but I <laughs> hope that everybody who it might help has the option to. I also wanted to take a second then, speaking of people who it might help, just to thank the couple people that we did talk to that were willing to share their stories. Um, hopefully it helps make some of these issues. You know, we talk about debates sometimes as these academic things where we look up studies and articles, et cetera. But most of the things we talk about this show are, are real issues that affect real people. And so we appreciate when those people are willing to share their stories and hopefully give our listeners an insight into what the people around them are going through and, and dealing with. On a related note, speaking about how difficult it can be to get help on these issues, it might be worth pointing out that there is a new, for people that might not have heard about it, a new suicide and crisis lifeline, the phone number, which has been simplified, I think in the spirit of recognizing how difficult it is to jump through bureaucracy and get help, the old suicide hotline was some normal phone number, which is just a lot of numbers to remember. And so the new suicide and crisis hotline is just 988. And that's kind of a nice, kind of a nice gesture, nice thought, hopefully helpful. Yeah. I can remember 988. I could not tell you what the regular phone number was before now. 
So now that number is 988. You can reach out to that. And I know that we also always plug our socials as ways for you to answer questions that we pose on the show, etc. But also, we're not so big of a show that Kelly and I are not willing to talk to anybody that might be interested in talking to us anonymously, what have you, about any issues. So alongside 988, we do, this is not just a plug, but we do have our Facebook, our Twitter at IndubitablyPod, our email at IndubitablyPodcast at gmail.com. And we would legitimately, speaking for myself here, but I'm sure Kelly, you too. Yeah, I'll take a break from yelling at Matt Gates and actually like have a real legitimate conversation with you, our listeners. I'm sure it'll be a much more enriching experience. And we joke a lot, but we genuinely care about the people who listen. And the people who don't, but less. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. But seriously, <laughs> you know, if you if you feel as though that would be helpful, um, please don't hesitate to reach out. <laughs>